Hello, welcome to The Gallimore Free, a new podcast about history. I'm Will, and with me is my co-host Nick. And over this series, we're going to be looking at some of the more overlooked stories throughout history. Hello, yes, thank you, Will. And together, we're both going to be looking at the forgotten bits of history, or the bits of history you maybe just didn't learn too much about in school. And we're going to be doing this every couple of weeks, hopefully, with a new topic coming uh, from this wonderful homemade studio that we've got going underneath this <laughs> this carpet shop, which is just brilliant. Yes. So you might be wondering what the gallimorphy means. Uh, it's an old-fashioned word, and it means basically a, a hodgepodge or a, a jumble. And we feel that represents well um, history. We, we like to think of history as a sort of a very ordered, structured thing. One thing comes after the other, but it's often not quite so simple. We're really passionate about history, the both of us. I studied history uh, and uh, Will, uh, well, you've just got a very large bookcase. Yeah, I've got a, a <laughs> lots of bookcases. Sometimes I watch uh, the old BBC documentary. Do you finish them? Sometimes. So today we'll be discussing probably one of the most significant British institutions of the past hundred years. Um, if you haven't figured it out already, here's a clue. <gasps> so for anyone who hasn't worked it out yet, we will of course be discussing the NHS or the National Health Service. It's a huge part of our lives here in Britain, um, but maybe it's something that we don't really know that much about. Perhaps uh, we take it for granted. It's something which for among younger people in this country w has always been there. Uh, we can't imagine a time where there was no NHS, but of course there was. Um, it's less than 100 years old. That's very recent in historical terms. So I think what we're going to look at today is really um, how the NHS came about and the people who were involved in that. No, that's exactly right. Um, as you said, it's it's less than 100 years old. It's it's 74 years old. No, wait, sorry. That, that's the age of my dad. My dad is actually older than the NHS. The NHS is 72 years old as of 2020. Uh, and it was born on the 5th of July 1948, uh, thanks to the efforts of the Labour government under Clement Attlee and uh, the Minister of Health, Nye Bevan. So obviously, uh, Clement Attlee, um, he was a prime minister of the day. And I think Bevan is perhaps a name that many people associate with the NHS, but we're not entirely sure who he was. Now, obviously, the, the, the NHS was formed by more than the actions of one man, but he is such a sort of figurehead. Where did he come from? What was his background before he started pushing for a national health service? He came from a very humble background in Wales, and he endured quite a lot of poverty when he was growing up. But he was a Labour MP for many years, and uh, he, he served... Uh, in Parliament during the Second World War and was uh, often the, the voice of opposition to many of the Tories' policies, much to their annoyance. But basically, the, the thing you need to know about Nye Bevan in this context is he was the Minister of Health uh, for Labour when they won their landslide election in 1945. He set up the NHS. He was tasked with that responsibility and he was the person that opened the first NHS hospital in Manchester, which was the Park Hospital. And uh, the very first patient was a young lady named Sylvia Diggory, who was just 13 years old. And she came in with a liver condition and uh, was successfully treated. Oh, that's good. That's good. Under different circumstances, you could have also been the first malpractice suit. But <laughs> luckily, we didn't go yeah. there. And, and just one other interesting fact about that is that, um, strangely, her, her grandson is, and hopefully still is, because this article was a few years old, but married the great-granddaughter of Clement Attlee, who, of course, was the Prime Minister 
of the Labour government. Uh, and they both met working in the NHS. And the NHS as itself is a massive organisation. It's actually the fifth largest organisation in the world. So imagine the amount of countless love stories that are out there. It's a very nice thought. It's, it's also amazing to think the NHS is so big. I mean, we living in Britain, we think of the NHS as being quite a large entity. But I wasn't aware that it was so huge on an international scale. Yeah, I mean, when you compare it to the other organisations it's against, I mean, I think the, the biggest employer in the world is the US Army. And then it's uh, it's obviously the fifth. It's just, just behind Mackie D's. <laughs> so the health service just beaten by McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, obviously um, we like to think we're healthier. <laughs> but that may not necessarily be the case. Okay. All right. Well, what do we know about life before the NHS? Life before the NHS was hard and complicated because healthcare wasn't free. The whole concept of medicine before the NHS was means-tested. It was based on what you could earn. There were different schemes by the time the NHS was set up and schemes it replaced. So actually, one of the most interesting things about the NHS is it, it didn't build any new hospitals when it began. They simply appropriated all the hospitals and GP surgeries and doctors they could. But originally, before the NHS, there were sort of three types of hospital. You had your private hospital, which was the fancy hospital which rich people went to. You had your municipal hospitals, which were hospitals controlled by the local councils. And then you had your charitable hospitals, which were uh, sort of people volunteered to sort of give treatment to people too. And all of these hospitals were sort of pay-as-you-go, means-tested based treatment. It sounds like um, sounds like a gym membership. You pay more, <laughs> you get to go to the fancy gym. You pay less, you go to the local leisure centre. Well, it... In many cases, you don't go to a gym, you just jog if yeah. you can't afford it, <laughs> which is essentially what a lot of people were, were doing. That, I mean, that's that's one of the interesting things. When the NHS formed, uh, it kind of put a lot of the old uh, wise women out of business. Like, you, you know, when you're young, maybe your grandmother, like if you broke your leg, oh, you know, mm. just put this weird lavender ointment on it and it'll grow back normally. <laughs> they kind of got put out of business because people could actually see real doctors. So was it, was it quite common for... Um or perhaps uh, medical procedures which would today be, be performed in a hospital to be performed in the home back then by uh, somebody who was just a bit keen but maybe didn't have all the qualifications. It might have happened. People wouldn't know actual surgical techniques. But the, one of the most common things people performed was obviously births. Pretty interesting. Um, so the NHS, it, it wasn't created in a void. There were many, many little steps leading up to it. You mentioned the sort of the, the different tiers of treatment depending on what you could afford what was the uh, the quality of care did that vary between them was it standardized across the spectrum or was it a case of you got what you paid for if you paid top money you got the best doctors basically yeah you certainly got a better level of care and, and better supplies better treatment better better means of service and this was an issue that came about when the nhs absorbed all those hospitals in when it was set up was that you still sort of had differing levels of service and they tried to balance this out which upset a lot of the hospitals particularly London hospitals who had a sort of a better level of care and in fact what one of the main opponents to the NHS was the medical associations and the doctors didn't want to be government employees one member of the BMA which is the British Medical Association compared the National Health Service to something the Nazis would do and uh, you know so there was a lot of opposition and in fact many of the GPs this was an issue that Nye Bevan encountered. Many of the GPs just simply refused and he had to cut a deal 
whereby they could keep their private practices, but they'd be contracted to the NHS. So even even on day one, a compromise had to be made with the doctors. It wasn't just a case of the government sweeps in and says, right, this is what we're doing now. They they were actually able to work with the doctors and the existing hospitals. You mentioned that the uh, the BMA were initially uh, resistant to the to the uh, formation of the NHS. Um, but the reports seem to say that a lot of the public were very much for it. Um, what was the, the situation like uh, during the formation? What, was there a lot of resistance to it or were we generally, it was quite easy to pass it? The crucible of war, as, as, a, as a lot of things, sort of propelled it forward into the public idea. You had a lot of people working together. Healthcare was a major issue. People wanted it. But obviously the doctors didn't want it and the Conservatives didn't want it because they considered it to be a form of national takeover, but also because it it was going to be expensive. They voted 21 times against bills brought forward after the war to set up the NHS. And after the Labour government was voted out, uh, after their term came to an end, they tried to tinker with the NHS but found resistance from the public because the public really wanted it. And basically, ever since the NHS was established, from 1948 right up until today, there's kind of been a tug of war between Labour and the Tories who will come in and they will change something and the other side won't like it. I think that tug of war, it's one of those things, isn't it? It it sort of, it it seems to go beyond just the health service. I think when you get one government in after another, there's always a, a certain amount of trying to undo what the last guys did. Um. Obviously, the the NHS was formed despite the resistance, and it has persevered for uh, over 70 years now. Quite a a groundbreaking achievement, Um, quite, you know, a major thing, especially in Britain. Um, But had anything similar to this existed before then? So the NHS was technically the first national health service. There are many different sort of countries who have schemes or practices that equate to the the state providing health care. So I think one of the first ones was a national insurance scheme that was set up in Germany in 1884 by uh, the guy who unified Germany, Otto van Bismarck. Oh, yeah, yeah the guy with the moustache and the, the pointy hat, right? Uh, well, I don't know. Did he have a pointy hat? I, I don't know. He, he had a moustache. <laughs> Um, Britain sort of followed suit in 1911 with their own National Insurance Act, but it was all about giving uh, labourers and low-paid workers access to to see doctors. So it was more geared towards the working population rather than everyone's general health care. Uh, in Britain, that was expanded in the 30s to include half of the adult population, but still that's only half of the population. Um, and then... Really, the war changed a lot of things. We haven't mentioned it yet, but the Beveridge Report, which I'm sure most people will have heard of, really sort of helped set in motion the idea of national health care as well. Um, basically, it was it was commissioned by the government to look at how they could improve social services. And he recommended a system of social security where sort of everyone pays into a national insurance fund and they get the treatment they need. But largely, the NHS is funded directly by taxation rather than the national insurance. Um but he wanted to say the five giants of, you know, want, disease, ignorance and squalor. And the report was, you know, hugely popular, uh, even though it was initially suppressed a few times by Churchill, who didn't really want it to steal funder from other wartime things. And he's um, Churchill's relationship with the NHS is, is contested by different historians because the Tories had in their manifesto, they had a promise to 
to introduce a national health service in 1945. But of course, the details are a bit few and far between. And uh, <laughs> I think a few people actually doubt they would have actually gone as far as Labour. Yeah, interestingly, apparently they, they found a copy of the Beveridge Report in Hitler's bunker. Uh, and the notes suggest he, he was quite, uh, is quite approving of it. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I think that's a story from the National Archives. But the, yeah, the sort of story goes that the Nazi executive summary noted it was superior to all current German social insurance policies. So um, that sounds like a glowing review. It, to it me. doesn't really help the accusation from the BMA, <laughs> who, compared, <laughs> who compared it to uh, to a national socialist policy. But uh, <laughs> but obviously, it is, again, it was the the Beveridge report suggested something which was not what the NHS became. It wasn't a, a national insurance scheme in the same way. It was simply giving that chance for people to walk in and just get healthcare. So the Beveridge report wasn't setting the blueprints for the NHS, but it was influential in its formation. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Okay, so we, we've mentioned the, um, the, the big players who were instrumental in the formation of the NHS, and we've discussed uh, the doctors who were initially quite resistant to the idea. But what did the patients think about it? Having come from the previous system of uh, the, um, the charitable and the, the, pay, the point of service um, healthcare, um, how did they feel transitioning to this this new system? They absolutely loved it. And uh, thanks to the Mass Observation Archive, which was sounds a bit ominous, but was actually a sort of people's history. It was set up just before the war in 1937. It was actually really instrumental in, in helping gather opinion during wartime as well. There's lots of different respondents who talked about the NHS and their, and their opinions towards it and, and saying how it basically changed their lives. So before the NHS was introduced, one respondent had said that they were very happy to pay a weekly contribution to cover everything because doctors' bills were dreaded. And they said that during long illness, it could really cripple their family because no one's working. And uh, so when the health scheme came along, they they said they were wholeheartedly in favour of it. And then there was another person who said that, because uh, obviously dentistry, when the NHS was formed, is actually free. Nowadays, we, we, we obviously pay a small charge, but it's still only a small charge compared to what we might actually pay if we lived in, say, America. Uh, strangely enough, that dentistry charge went out quite quickly. The Tory, that was one of the first things the Tories got rid of was free dentistry. <laughs> uh, but when, when the dentistry was free under the NHS, when it came in, one respondent says, I can well remember desperately saving every penny of pocket money to pay my dentist bills and basically forfeiting the need to buy a winter coat. Um, so the bugbear of bills has been eliminated by the NHS. I think that, that goes to show the impact. Like so This was a person who had to choose between keeping warm in the winter or having teeth and I think that's the choice that we have to remember about the NHS today is that it really does make a huge difference in, in people's lives. I think also uh, when it comes to dentistry while it is no longer free it is subsidised and it means that people do not have to suffer in pain while they do have to pay a certain amount it is nowhere near what you would pay to have that done privately. So when the NHS was introduced in the 1940s, it was, uh, it was hugely popular with the public. There was some resistance, but it was overcame. 70 years on, I think you can say that the NHS has achieved its goal. And I think 70 years on, it's still providing an effective health service to the nation. Um, people are perhaps a, a little more uh, critical of the system these days. Their expectation seems to be higher than they were in the 1940s. I don't know if perhaps that's because we take for granted 
something which has always been there, at least from our perspective. But I still feel, looking at the opinions, that there is no appetite to replace it with anything else right now. There are many nations around the world now that have national healthcare, subsidised healthcare, and they do it well. Um, and the NHS has always kind of been a benchmark. It's, it's kind of simultaneously one of those very, very, very efficient organisations, but also very, very inefficient. It's that sort of dichotomy that runs through it. Um, but yeah, I think if it were to go, it would be absolutely devastating. It would be terrible. If you suddenly had to pay five, even five pounds just to go see your GP, the amount of people that would put off going to their GP. I mean, I know people that don't go to the dentist because they have to pay £25 to go to the dentist to, to get their teeth seen. So, that, so they go years without going and then only really go when trouble develops that could have been stopped. I don't think anyone could ever get rid of it. It's just too popular. Even even the doctors who opposed it, I think within a year, over 95% of doctors joined the NHS despite initially being opposed to it. So it, 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 it took some time, but it quickly became an embedded idea. And I don't think that's ever going to change. I think um, you only need to look at the uh, the public's response during the COVID pandemic to the NHS, obviously under a huge amount of strain, but there was so much support for it. There were so many signs hung in people's windows, people standing outside their houses and applauding. I think it's um, it's part of British life now. I don't think you could get rid of it if you wanted to. Mm, exactly, yeah. So this is the part of the podcast where we discuss some of our favourite facts about the topic that we're discussing. So obviously we've peppered facts throughout the podcast so far, but these are ones which really caught our eye that we thought were really worth highlighting. So Nick, what has interested you about this topic? It's the NHS logo. So I've always grown up with the NHS, but the, the, the logo we now know as the NHS logo called the Blue Lozenge was, was ordered for use by the sort of a now defunct NHS management organisation in 1990. Uh, but it wasn't introduced until 1999. Huh. It's, uh, it's blue Pantone 300. The letters have to be 2.4 times as wide as they are high. And they have to be Frutiger bold italic white font. It's a really powerful logo and it's so ubiquitous. And for me, that it, it just beggars belief that it's such a new invention in many ways. You know? Yeah, I'd, I'd say like you, I mean, this is probably showing my age a bit, but that blue logo is all I've known of the NHS. So how did the NHS market itself before then? Was there a standardised logo that preceded it? Before the 99 rebrand, there were over 600 logos because the NHS had a bunch of different organisations all working within it, sort of all competing in a, in a weird way as well. Uh, but yeah, in 99, that went out the window and these strict rules came in for the rebrand. Although technically there are four uh, NHS logos. So the the one we recognise today, probably unfairly, is is the is the is the England one. There are actually four logos: one for Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and England. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting fact. So before I I, I throw my fact in, uh, I actually have my own fact uh, related to yours. So the um, the font used in NHS signage was actually the one designed for British Rail. Um, obviously, it's no longer in use, but you can still see it in older hospitals. Oh, well, at least they're reusing things in it. So come on then, what's your fact? So my fact is about a first. Um, so when we were looking at the NHS, what surprised me was the amount of firsts that the NHS is responsible for. 
Um, like what? So the one that which struck me the most was the NHS was responsible for the first successful birth of a child through IVF treatment. The child was a girl called Louise. She was born in 1978 in Oldham. Um, I didn't realise that IVF was a thing as far back as 1978, but it was, and the NHS was the first to pioneer it. The um, physiologist responsible actually went on to receive uh, the Nobel Prize in Medicine for it. Yeah, so the NHS not only does it uh, provide medical treatment, it, it also progresses it. Brilliant. Yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? Now we're going to look at some of the myths around the NHS because every historical topic has myths around them that people believe and that you know, obviously they're, they're just not true. Um, so, Will, what was your myth that you wanted to dispel about the NHS? Yeah, so there is... There is a misconception, and it's one that I actually believed in until we started researching this podcast. Um, a lot of people believe that more people turn up at A&E in the winter. And you can see where this is probably coming from. There's normally, uh, they normally seem busier at winter, but actually the figures are higher in the summer. And the reason why um, is that um, the people who turn up in the winter tend to be people with more chronic illnesses who are more affected by the cold. And they tend to stay longer. Uh, and that's why a lot of a and seem more backed up during the winter. And that is my myth. Busted. So why are more people in the summer? Is that just because they're just like out and about crashing their skateboards and bikes, whatever young people do? I'm clearly out of touch. <laughs> my source for this actually only just gave me the figures for the last five years. They weren't able to give the reasons for more people. I'm sure there's probably... Uh, a lot of reasons you could speculate. It could be that you're more active in the summer. You're yeah. more likely to be outside doing things, um, getting injured. Yeah. So that's my myth. Um, what have you got? So one of the biggest uh, bugbears about the NHS is, or my biggest bugbear that is levied against the NHS is that it's constantly abused by uh, illegal immigrants or you know people coming over on health tourism, doing all those sorts of things. Um, but this just isn't really true. I mean, there is a cost of health tourism. So the King's Fund estimates that health tourism costs the UK between 60 and 80 million a year, which sounds like a lot of money. I mean, it is a lot of money, 60 to 80 million. You'd be set for many, many multiple lives with that amount of cash. But the NHS annual budget is 113 billion. Well, that was uh, three or four years ago. And it's obviously grown to then. And, you know, that's not even 1%. So health tourism, so health tourism, is not crippling the NHS. And to be honest, studies have found that most legal immigrants will actually stay away from public institutions because they're afraid of being caught. So uh, they're actually a lot healthier as well in general. Oh, that's that's really interesting, actually, because you'd... Um, I, I know a, a lot of what you read in the media would suggest that uh, the opposite's true. But, yeah... Yeah, well, people always try to sensationalise or scapegoat immigrants, and immigrants make up a lot of the NHS workforce as well. I, I don't know how many times I've, I've been to the NHS and seen how diverse and multicultural it is, and doctors and nurses, and 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 from all over, from different countries across the world, and it's it's really nice to see to see that in a workplace. Mm. Well, that's our podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, I don't know about you, about Nick, but I found it all really interesting looking into the NHS. Um, yeah, uh, hopefully people have gone away with something that they can find 
useful in a pub quiz at some point, hopefully. Yeah, they're very <laughs> specific pub quizzes. So hopefully we'll we'll be back soon from our our basement in the carpet shop. Um, what are we talking about next? Sticky ne- in here. <laughs> it is very on sticky. Uh, <laughs> next time, as we continue our meander through history, we'll be going from medicine to mutiny, and nurses to nooses, as we discuss Barbary pirates. In the meantime, please subscribe and let us know what you think at thegalamorphy.show. The Gallimorphy is also available at all good podcast apps, and even some of the bad ones. But with that, thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon for another jumbled hodgepodge delve into history. Yeah, catch you around, hopefully. See you soon. Mm-hmm.